Hi, and welcome back to the regular listeners of the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. And if you're a new listener, thank you and welcome as well. Simple question today. How much money is there in boxing? What, what's, what's the big number we're all shooting for? Number one. Number two, how big is the actual market, realistically? What are the real numbers behind it? And are these being reflected in what we hear? Right. I, the reason behind this is, I get into a lot of conversations and I know that there are people and I have haters and I have people who like to talk that say, nah, Terry doesn't know anyone in boxing. He doesn't talk to anyone. He's not really involved or he's not as involved as he likes to think he is. Whatever. Good luck to you. But in essence, I talk to a lot of guys in the sport and some of the things I get told shock me to the point where you realize we call it professional boxing, but not much of it is actually professional. So then you go, okay, let's try and do some analysis and then let's work out where the money is, therefore where the money goes and actually how much of it goes where. So let's start somewhere where I think we're all pretty much comfortable. Let's take, you know, we'll create fictional promoter S. And S runs a show at your call. What's your call's capacity for a fight? 1,200? Being generous, i say 1,200? Now, you could sell 1,200 tickets, but the reality is people come and leave at different times. So it only needs to be 1,200 at peak times. So you're probably realistically shooting to sell 15 to 1,600. So we'll call it 1,500. Tickets are what? 40, 60, and 100? And... I think we're being fair when we say the average ticket price is about 60 quid. Maybe being a bit generous, but I'm in a generous mood. So at 60 on average per ticket and 1,500, what do you want? 90 grand? That's your take? 90 grand is your big number for this. There's no TV. There's no. You might get a bit of sponsorship to take it to maybe 100, 110 grand. Fantastic. So you're on 110 grand on a 10 fight card, right? So there's 10 fights. Differing levels of seniority from four rounders to maybe a Commonwealth title fight. So even if you just pause there and go, there are 20 guys that need to be paid for putting their lives on the line. If you gave those 20 guys a share of that 90k, so that's what? Four and a half grand each. Okay. And you can camber it so some get 1500, some get seven or eight grand. Cool. And that's no one else getting paid. No refs, no officials, no sanctioning bodies, nobody getting paid. Just the boxers getting paid. And we know that's not realistic because the boxers normally eat last. So you've got to pay your overheads. That's your venue, your security, so forth. And I know Martin Theobald did a version of this, so I'm going to try to stick to his version as best I can, but I'll probably struggle. Take it, for me, I say realistically, 
take 30% off in costs straight away. You know, the guys that own your call will want to eat. The security company will want to eat. You know, everyone's going to want to eat. Your stewards, your officials are all going to want to eat. So now you've knocked 30% off. So where we were at a 110, I think I said, we're now down closer to about 87 or whatever it is. Yeah, we're close to about 87. Yeah. And out of that 87, now you've got to find a way to pay your guys. Fighter, if you've got a foreign opponent, foreign opponent plus costs. So now opponent costs. They're fixed. Right? They're fixed. So we then say, right, there are 10 opponents. And they all get a purse. And their flights and hotels have to be covered. You know, let's say those costs, you know, run at about four to five hundred pounds per fight. And I could be off on that for the record. That's just... That's 10 grand in overheads before you pay them their purse. Probably five grand, sorry. So now we're, we're now slowly dwindling this fund down, right? Then the promoter's got to eat. So now the promoter's saying, well, I've taken the risk from this and there's an opportunity cost to my time and my business infrastructure. So I now need to take a cut. So you can realistically get to a point where 10... A-side boxers are dipping into a pot of about 50k. Right? 50k. And if you follow these assumptions through, you realize these are the best case scenarios. This is everything going right. You're sharing in 50k. But the reality is it's never that good. And actually, a lot of it's what I call breadline boxing. You're literally on that fine margin of if we don't sell an extra 90 to 100 tickets, we make a loss. That means some boxers aren't getting paid or getting paid less than they thought they would. You know, bear in mind, this is a professional sport and these guys are training and living as professionals. Yeah, because it occurred to me, you take off 30% for overheads. Then you probably take... 20 to 30% in opponent costs. The promoter has to eat. And then the fighters are there just literally quibbling over whatever's left. So, it's not lucrative to be a boxer. Now, the original premise of small hall boxing was if you're really good and you move a lot of tickets and people come to see you, you graduate to the televised platform. That doesn't happen anymore. The televised promoters get their own guys. They're not waiting around for a small hall guy to do anything to the point where they have to deal with managers they don't want to deal with. They build their own talent rosters. You're seeing it with Frank. Guys like Archie Sharp, Denzel Bentley. In another generation, they would be fighting on small hall shows in York Hall consistently, week after week perhaps, subsidised by a promoter who believed in them. But in 2019, no. The big name promoters are just scooping them up. So what you see on a small hall show are people who will never graduate beyond that. And on a side note, 
it's a shame how Linus's career has gone, and it's a shame how Linus... I can't say how Linus has been treated, because I, I don't know the ins and outs of it. But from where he was on every episode of Ring Talk as the next in line at middleweight, that discussion has changed, that energy's changed. And that's a shame. Now, it's not about blame. It's just about, I hope someone out there can resurrect Linus Adolfia's career, because as an athlete, as a boxer, and as a man... He's five out of five in terms of rating. I rate him really highly. But he's falling into this small hall curse. So, so you look at the small hall scene and you go, in the best case scenario, you just might take home some chump change and you're only going to fight four or five times that year. So you might make 15 grand from being a professional boxer in that year. Okay, and that's quite a nice number. Now take a quarter of that off for your management costs. Now take a tenth of that off for your training costs, right? That's just what you've got to pay your manager and your trainer. That's not your supplementation costs. That's not your cost of gloves and training gear and this, that and the third. Those costs add up. New boots, new shorts, and you rip through shorts a lot. You go through trainers a lot. All of these things start to add up. So just over five grand goes to your trainer and your manager. They might be generous and go, do you know what? All in for 25%. I'll train and manage you for 25%. It's a problem, but we'll discuss that later. So you're taking home just over 10 grand from four or five fights, getting your head punched in, living like a pro. Your monthly running costs, just from a boxing perspective, probably run up to about three or four grand. You're breadline boxing at this point. And yes, you're living the dream and you're saying, I want to be a world champion one day. But if you're on the small hall scene, you're not graduating beyond that. The numbers just tell you that can't be the case. You can land in the small hall circuit from elsewhere. You rarely rise up above it. And I mean that from a Goodwin perspective, an Errol Johnson perspective, a Dennis Hobson perspective, a Sam Kinnock perspective... It doesn't matter the promoter. These small hall guys just aren't graduating like they used to because they're getting picked up by the big guys earlier and earlier. So actually, as a small hall boxer, you've kind of hit your ceiling. Your call's not going to get any bigger. You can't charge any more at your call without jeopardizing it, and it's not a good enough product to televise. So you're stuck. And essentially, you entertain your mates, your family, and a few people who are hardcore fans. Because the economics don't make sense to have you any higher up on the card. So that's where you are looking at it from a, a small hall perspective, right? So my question then becomes, is it any different for an Olympian? So now you're an Olympian and you sign a contract with a big Essex-based promoter. What happens? Somewhere between 1500 and two grand around is your deal. Your first three fights will be four-rounders, unless you're exceptional. You might start off in six, and you're going to fight four times that year. So in a typical case, you're going to do 16 rounds. At best, you're going to get 32 grand for that, but realistically, maybe closer to 24 grand. Yeah? So as an Olympian, you're now earning less money to box than you were under the GB system. 
You can supplement that with sponsorships. You can supplement that with public appearances if you're an Olympic medalist. Yes, then you can do your public speaking engagements. But the true reality is, you're still on the breadline. You're not living like a king unless you're an Anthony Joshua and people can just see the money immediately and it's obvious. So, these guys, no one's making money. Look, we've got the small hall guy taking home about 10 grand and probably losing half of that in just training expenses to be a boxer. Then you've got the Olympian guy who's on a TV network and he's pulling in 24 and he's got a He's going to hand a quarter over to a promoter and he's going to hand 10% over to a trainer. So he's still barely taking home 15 grand and that's without deducting expenses, costs and so forth. And you might get some things free through sponsorships. Yeah, and, you, and that might offset some of the costs. But you're still not making more than you would have as a GB boxer. So how many people are going to be Olympians? At most, 13 Realistically, we'll probably take eight to the Olympics in the best case scenario. I think we might take six. Qualification is not going well. So there are six people in this privileged position. Everyone else who's a boxer has got a graft. There's a small group of people who are also paid per round. So there's some boxers who you can justify that because of they're either heavyweights, they're knockout artists, or they have massive following. So you just say, Do you know what? will absorb the cost knowing that we've got someone who can move the needle. I don't want to speculate on who's on those numbers because I don't think they want their business put out in public. <laughs> Which is rare for me to say that, but it's true. So you've got guys like that who do that. And so they can live and train as pros and they probably supplement their income through other ways. So we come back to this question of, so when do you start making the money as a young prospect? What is it you need to go from pulling in 24 grand a year to these big purses for the fights? And it's one of two things. It's either a title or you have a natural rival that the public have bought into. So if you look at the 2016 Olympians, I know people say Katie Taylor, and it's a valid argument, but Katie Taylor takes most of the money from outside of boxing. If you actually look at the 2016 guys who are probably making the most money, it's... Lawrence O'Coley, and it's Anthony Fowler. What have those two got in common? One, they have natural rivals, or they did have natural rivals. Rival for Lawrence, rival number one, clearly Isaac Chamberlain. And when those two fought, you know, you can estimate that they shared a purse of somewhere around 100 grand, maybe 110 they shared amongst themselves. And then you've obviously seen Lawrence go on to fight for titles. And he's probably pulling money in, in and of that range. I don't want to speculate, but just based on past trends, that's probably what he's pulling in. So that's, that's just off that rivalry and his pursuit of titles. Fowler then had the rivalry with Fitzgerald. And before that, it was Cheeseman. And there was energy for those fights. So you started to see the numbers build for those purses. So they were good money fights for those guys. And they took them from almost, the, the, as Americans call it, the chump change into the good money. But by no means millionaire status. So they had those rivalries. And then if we go back, O'Hara Davis and Josh Taylor. Not a natural rivalry, 
but one that started to make sense. And so Cyclone were prepared to invest in that because they knew it would elevate Josh to a high level of public consciousness. But there are three examples of guys who've made money that people of their experience and their level weren't making through having natural rivals and also being able to pursue titles. So that's how you do it. Now, if you're, if you're in none of these spaces, what are you doing right now? You're, you're scratching around. Some people are trying to sell tickets. Some people are selling tickets. Others have given up and are not selling tickets and are happy to be opponents or they're happy just to be low-priority items and they just fill her on a card. Because a lot of people don't sell tickets. In fact, a lot of people pay to box. and You, you don't hear about this. You show up on fight day. You haven't sold enough tickets to cover your opponent, never mind the house fee. And so you've got to put your hand in your pocket and say, I'm covering everything out of my own money. How many boxers do this? You'd be surprised at how many. So the Instagram shows that they're this big name boxer, they're this, but they're paying to play. I don't mean they're paying to play by selling tickets. They're paying out of their own money to box. And they still call themselves professional. Now, you can invest in yourself and say, if I do this often enough, I can get to the top. Prince Patel is a good example of this. And I know people will mock Prince Patel and say he only fought for an IBO title. But he's trying to work outside the system, so I respect that hustle. So now we're at a point now where we look and we go, actually, this isn't very lucrative at all, right? So as a boxer, until you get beyond British level, this is not a lucrative sport for you. And not many people make it to that level. And not many people are realistic with themselves to say, actually, I don't operate at a level where I am good enough. I'm not dedicated enough. I don't have the right team around me, which is another podcast for another time. But the economics at this point, at sub-European level, it's not a living you would want to have for the effort you have to put in. You have to really love the sport at this point. So there's, there's no real money, right? So then we've got to flip it round, And then we go, okay, we've looked, we've looked from the bottom upwards, and it's horrible. So what happens near the top, or what happens at the top? So apart from Joshua and Dillian, no one's really doing crazy pay-per-view numbers. So it's not as lucrative as you think it is to be on pay-per-view. The pay-per-view structure outside of Joshua and Dillian that have specific contracts linked to that is actually just a revenue gathering exercise for the TV networks and the promotional company. So if you put on a card that has, like I just saw a headlining, for example... That's just so Sky can get a bit of extra money in their coffers. That's really why they do that. Use the pay-per-view money to, to almost cross-subsidize some of their other boxing content or other things they want to do. And so that's why you don't make fabulous money unless you're AJ, unless you're Dillian. But now let's look, at, let's look at the guys at the top. How many people do you see in their entourage? You know, Joshua, you know, he'll have a picture with 26 people. They're all getting paid out of his money. They all need to eat. He has a management company. They have overheads. His promotional company. There's, all, there's overheads everywhere for Team Joshua. So actually the money he makes is lost very quickly. Just in having that massive edifice that supports him. Didion's is smaller. 
but it's still people who need to eat off that. Promoters, trainers, everyone's eating off these guys because they're the cash cows. That's where you make most of your revenue. That's what cross-subsidizes the process of building up guys like Okoli and Joshua Boatsy and Anthony Fowler and Scott Fitzgerald, your Ted Cheesemans. It's that cross-subsidization. So they're able to eat because these big guys are generating excess money. So I think just from a boxing perspective in the UK, what I'm trying to say, and I hope people understand this, is most of the boxers you see on Twitter, I don't care if it's a Sonny Edwards, if it's a Tommy Frank, if it's a Dave Abraham, they're not making enough money from boxing to live independently. They're just not. The economics don't make sense like that. They might have sponsorships that cover it, but their boxing income doesn't make sense. And they're good fighters. They're really talented and skilled fighters. And they're popular. So, as a boxer, you've got to ask yourself, when will I get the money? Cause, and, I, and I talk about this with people. Now, say you want to get to a title as quick as you can, because that's when it becomes financially beneficial for you to engage in the sport of boxing. Area level? <laughs> Below area level? Ah, forget it. Right? So as a fighter, that's your size of market. Anything outside the top 20 boxers in this country is not lucrative enough for you to pursue it long term. If you want a comfortable standard of living. Because you're going to struggle otherwise. So then we now turn around and go, okay, so who else is in the sport? Let's talk about our video journalists. <laughs> if you're IFL and you're sponsored and you're well-known and you can do public appearances and stuff and your platform is strong enough that it opens other doors. Because remember, YouTube changed the algorithm now. So it's not just about views in terms of monetization. It's about engagement. Because in the old days, you could just buy a bucket load of views. But now you've got to buy the views and the engagement, which becomes doubly expensive on an algorithm that changes every quarter. Doesn't make any sense. So you see some of these other platforms that aren't IFL. Now, we all agree IFL are the bona fide leaders, and we agree that IFL is lucrative. So you have the other guys trying to engage in behavior to boost their profile in order to sell their proposition to sponsors. So a lot of the numbers are artificially high. And the mistake you can make is to attach the high figures to the wrong content. Which happens when you don't specify the video. So it ends up being the wrong video that gets the spike. But you still sell this to, the, you know, to a betting firm. Because what does a betting firm say? We just want to see how many views you get. They don't care about engagement because they don't understand how this game works. But these guys aren't making money. You're running around the country with your silly little microphone and your silly little camera incurring hundreds of pounds of expenses every day, every two days, whatever. And it's not really being covered in a state where you can say, I am a man and I am providing wealth for my family. What you're able to say is, look at me, I'm in boxing. But you're an adult asking other adults if they will answer your questions. I can't imagine, it's not for me, man, I'm not going to lie. But do you make money doing that? The answer to that is no. That's why everyone that does it has another job. You know, you might, I don't know, you might be a doctor. You know, 
You might be an artist, you might be a journalist, you might be a struggling actor. I don't know, you could be doing anything. But the reality is, it's not lucrative. Unless you're Coogan, it's not lucrative enough. I know Michelle Joy Phelps has people who back her. And that can be beneficial. And that's what enables the, a lot of the cross-border travel. But, and, you know, give her credit, she's been in a long time and she's hustled hard. She's not one of the new jacks who who just inflated numbers and did whatever they thought would get them to the top quickly. She's hustled hard, so fair, fair play to her. But there's no money in this. These people aren't living like kings and queens. Anything you see on Instagram and stuff is stuff that they either borrowed off someone else or they're just posing with it for a picture. It's not lucrative because the boxing market's too small to monetize. We're a country of 60 million, and I believe the most we can say we have as people who are boxing fans in terms of they can have an intelligent conversation about boxing at various levels is half a million tops. I'd even argue it's probably closer to about 300,000 people. And that's why boxing is not mainstream anymore. It's not accessible. Boxers aren't accessible. They're not superheroes either. They're not these aloof superheroes. They're just kind of here and there. And now we realize that these guys are mostly broken. They're struggling. So now they can't even be heroes anymore. And then, yeah, these media platforms. Yeah, you know. Are you really going to hit all half a million people who are involved in boxing and who are fans of it? Absolutely not. So these guys aren't making much money either. Right? Trainers. So, big shout out to Adam Martin. Adam Martin is someone I've known a long time, got a hell of a lot of respect for him. He's a good trainer, knows his boxing, and the reality is, you know, he's a, he's a Fitzroy Lodge legend because he put a lot into the club. He doesn't often get his shout outs. He deserves them, but he doesn't get his shout outs. He does a lot. Now, look at Adam, and I know Adam wants to be a full-time trainer, but he's a smart man, and he does the economics and goes, it doesn't work for me. And this is why you'll see trainers flood one card with as many of their fighters as they can. Some will be on the A side, some will be on the B side. Why? Because when you're getting 10% for a fight, the way you make your money every, <laughs> with every fight card is to get six or seven of your guys on there. And if you're pulling in on average three or four hundred quid of each one of those guys, then fantastic. You've done your numbers. Even if they haven't done their numbers, you've done yours. So you'll see on, on some of those big northern shows that Sky put on, Joe Gallagher will do the corner four or five times, Dave Caldwell four or five times, because he knows he has to get his guys on there to get the money. And then what else do trainers do? So when, when, when one of their big elephants leaves the sport or dies, metaphorically speaking, they then have to go and get another one. So Dave Caldwell loses Tony Bellew. Then he's trying to get Derek in because you've got to get those numbers up. It's the same with Shane McGuigan. You lose a George Groves, you need a Luke Campbell. Or you need whoever you can get in at that level. Lawrence O'Coley helps too. It's, and it's not new and it's, not, it's just simple economics. This is how things remain viable in the long term. So when you see behavior like this, when people say, why is Gallagher trainer and manager? It's because he's got to guarantee his income. Everyone's trying to get certainty around the income they get. And so someone like, someone like Adam Martin, who doesn't get the 
respect he deserves from other promoters. And he should be on Warren's shows and he should be on Hearn's shows like Travis's, like Eddie Lambert's, because he's of that level of skill. He's done wonders with Kurt Garvey. And then we're going to see what he does with the other guys. You know, we, Jamie Carley's got his level, admittedly, but we'll see what he does with the other guys. Can he do something with Callum Miles? I don't know. But someone like Adam, that's his hustle. His hustle is, I need to get guys like Jermaine Brown fighting. I need to get guys like Kurt Garvey fighting and on TV shows. And he's not the only one. Glenn Rhodes. Ryan Rhodes. Steffi Ball. That's their model. Let me get as many of my guys on the show as possible and I can get my cut. If I'm a trainer, fantastic. If I'm a trainer and a manager, I do really well out of it. So this explains a lot of the behavior you see when managers become trainers or managers become promoters and this sort of thing because they're trying to get the biggest cut of the, cut of the cake that they can. And so bringing it back down to all of this and how much money is this? So when you're a trainer, not much money. Unless you're McCracken. Unless you're whoever's going to be training Derek next. And even though I don't think he's getting 10%. Eubank Jr. says he trains himself, so I don't think he's paying 10% to anybody. And so it's not lucrative. Someone like a Tony Sims probably makes a decent living, but I imagine he does it more for the love than the money. So it's definitely not the trainers making the money. So now we come down to managers, promoters and broadcasters. The three groups that have never taken a punch in their life and never have to take a punch in their life. So the promoters just take a cut of the show. They'll say, right, there's a house fee. This is how much we're taking off the show. If you don't get paid, you don't get paid. And this is as old school and as brutal a way of guaranteeing your own income as you can find. So it's like the music industry. In the music industry, artists don't get paid till the record company recoups its costs. Same with boxing. The promoter has to recoup. Then you might eat. So... So when you hear boxers complain they weren't paid what they were agreed in the purse, that is why. The pot wasn't big enough to give them the money they were promised. Uh, I'm trying to think. There was a big heavyweight fight between two Brits where purses were being bandied about of three million and one million. And the guy who was promised one million barely got a hundred grand and was going to pull out the fight on the day because he wanted more money. But there wasn't more money because no matter how much you try to sell and spin the show, it wasn't a financial success. And so if they can't do it, who can? But promoters will always make sure they make a bit of money. They make losses on some shows, but they try not to. They try and secure their income first. And that's not to say that they're snakes, but they're businessmen and they've got a job to do. So promoters do okay out of it. Managers do okay because that 25% comes out automatically. Whatever money comes down the pipe, the 25% gets taken out because normally the purse goes to the manager's account or the account the manager specifies. And the manager will normally have control of that account, so they'll take their 25% out. Some managers are kind enough to say, actually, I'm not going to take anything until you get to a certain level. And then normally at that point, the boxer turns it on them and says, actually, I'm not paying you 25%. And the numbers will change. But it's not unusual to see managers doing better than boxers because managers, you know, they have multiple pots of 25% they can take from. You know, someone like a Steffi Ball, an insane amount. You know, even someone, you know, you know, as a manager, Steve Goodwin has a lot of guys that go on the road and a lot of guys that he trains and he might get a cut of that as well. 
And that's quite lucrative. When you've got five or six guys fighting on a weekend, 25% becomes attractive. If you can roll it so they're fighting six, six to eight times a year, then it's a, it's a sizable income stream. And this is the same with the broadcasters. And this is why you end up having to pay for things now. This is why pay-per-views become so important. Because the broadcasters say, we've got a hardcore audience of about three to 500,000. And then we can layer some casuals on top of that. We're going to make them all pay. And they're going to pay because deep down they don't care about us and they don't care about the boxers. They just want to be entertained. And when they're not entertained, they'll switch off again. And that's the attitude you're seeing with Hearn. You know, anything on Sky is just going to be pay-per-view. Him and Sky have made that commitment to say, right, this is exactly what's going to happen. So there's actually, and there's, very, there's, there's a little money in that, but is anyone becoming a multimillionaire from boxing as a broadcaster? Probably not. It's just a useful way to top up some of your income streams, especially if you've overspent on things like you know, football, netball and rugby. So you say all of that to say in very simple terms, the people who really crack this boxing thing are the ones who have a plan. They're the ones who understand where the money is for them and they set plans in place to go and capture that money. But to do that, you need a good team around you. And this is where a lot of boxers get it wrong. Your trainer's wrong. Your manager's wrong. Your promoter, you don't really have a choice. But look at your situation and ask yourself, has my trainer made me better? For the 10% I'm giving my trainer, have they made me a better boxer? I might be fitter, I might be stronger, but that just happens by training every day. Have they made me a better boxer? If they haven't, you're in the wrong situation. Your manager, what money have they brought to me outside of boxing? If it's none, what do you need them for? Especially if you've been boxing for three years, you may as well go self-managed. And whenever you get an offer, you ring someone you trust in the sport and go, there's a reasonable offer. And there are people who will help you do that. But if your manager's not bringing you money outside of boxing, if he's not getting you on platforms, if your manager's not hustling for you, stop wasting your time with him. If your manager's also your promoter, then you've got even more problems. Because... It's not unusual, and there's a story. Uh, it's true, I've seen the text messages. A fighter sold enough tickets that the four-rounder he was going to do was profitable for him. He was going to make an additional five or six hundred pounds on top of what he thought he'd make. And so when this number was revealed, the promoter then said, mm, I want to get you a six-rounder then, because that's more money for him. And when this fighter refused, he was told, then you're just not boxing. If you want to do a six-rounder, you're not boxing. You know, that's how to be a good guy in boxing, isn't it? Put guns up to fighters who just want to make a living. So we've been all around the houses, and, and this is my advice to people. If you want to step into boxing in any role other than boxer, just know that you're not going to make enough money to buy a mansion. You're just not going to, because not many people do. Number one. Number two, if you want to come in as a trainer, you're not going to make a lot of money. And you're probably going to do more harm than good in the long run. If you want to come in as a boxer, ask yourself how much you love the sport. Do you love it enough to live like a pauper for years 
and maybe never get the break you think you deserve. Because if you don't love it that much, get another job. Box as an amateur for the rest of your life. Do it as a hobby. You get the same buzz, the same hit, but at least you'll have a proper living. Because I tell you this now, and I've seen it from every which way. You can name the 20 people in this country who make a reasonable living from boxing, considering what you do for a living, getting your head punched in, knowing that you've got a short career and you're probably doing a lot of damage to yourself, neurologically speaking. And we can only name 20 people who make that kind of living where you're like, you might be earning close to six figures in any one year. So next time you see these guys, just have a bit of sympathy because they're in a sport that's not lucrative. You know, at the top end of boxing, the guys we think are really talented and really skillful are probably earning what Vauxhall Conference footballers are earning. Yeah, let that sink in. That's the boxing market for you. At the top of this game, you're still a Vauxhall Conference footballer. The lads at Oxford United are making more money than you. The guys at Luton Town, Yeovil, making more money than you. It's not a sport for the faint of heart, and it's not a sport you can take lightly. If you have no ambition to win a title, you'll be paying to play for the rest of your career. But on that kind of sobering and, you know, on that reminder, guys, thank you for tuning in as always, and please... Subscribe on iTunes if that's your platform of choice. Leave a review. Let us know you care. If SoundCloud's your platform of choice, please like and follow. It always helps with the visibility of the podcast and we can get the message out there. We can get that realistic view out in the market so people actually understand what they should be doing in the sport. And my final message to any boxer, and I say this every time I meet people, message me, give me a call, any tricky decisions, or if you're not sure about your situation, give me a call, give me a text, we will find an answer and we'll put a plan together. It's been done before and a lot of people are eating a lot better than they were. You know, so don't be afraid to take that risk. Okay. Have a great weekend and I shall be back, I promise it won't be that long next time.